Welcome, everybody. Taryn, I don't even know what the time is, but it just feels like the right time. <laughs> um, good evening. Hi. I'm Jenny, and it's so lovely to welcome you all here this evening. Um, some fresh faces, some people I recognize from last week. Angela, welcome back. She's gone and had a baby and come back to us <laughs> for tonight. Um, it's lovely to have you in the room and your mom. <laughs> so I'm Jen. I'm part of the Signal leadership team here. And it's my great honor and privilege to welcome Taryn up here this evening for our second installment of How God Sees Women in the Evening. We've already had some amazing, sure, an amazing time this morning. Um, for those of you who were here with us, it just felt, yeah, really significant. Um, I just thought I'd actually share a little bit about why we're doing the series. Um, well, firstly, because it's one of our values, um, intergenerational and gender equality is one of our, but we've just clumped them together, <laughs> they do things, but um, we've got some values in the church and that's one of them. And um, it feels like every now and again, you actually need to hone in on not just how you do church, but what it actually means and what the, yeah, what are the hooks, what are the tools, what is the language behind it? Um, so that's one of the reasons. And the second reason is that also we just feel like God is doing something in the city um, around this topic. And he has signal with the amazing guidance and um, just years that you've put into this topic yourself and the journey that you and Jules have been on. It's such a privilege to host this um, yeah, under your guys' amazing leadership. Um, and so for such a time as this, it just feels like really important um, so I'm so glad that you guys are here on your long weekend. And Taryn, I'm going to give the microphone over to you now, right now. <laughs> I know better than to go away as I'm talking about. <laughs> so you, wait, no, just wait, just wait. I'm done. I'm done. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Are you done? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, let me pray for Taryn. Yeah. God, thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you so much for what you're going to do here this evening. Thank you for the truths that will be released. We just um, bring you our hearts, bring you our minds, Jesus Christ, and now our spirits, and make us ready to receive what you want to teach us tonight. Pray for every word out of Terence's mouth to be just ordained from you and just give him the freedom to um, really just share his heart with us. Amen. Amen. So lovely to be with you guys. So I want to speak about some aha moments. And, um, you know, we've also preaching on it in Signal Church in the mornings. And uh, certainly the, what I shared last week, the aha moment, that patriarchy comes in after the fall, not before. Because if patriarchy existed in Adam and Eve before the fall, well, then patriarchy is part of creation, uh, which is what I used to believe until I looked more carefully. and it's quite obvious not, and uh, by the way, this isn't some outlandish discovery I've made, uh, this, is, this is something of an academic consensus more and more, that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 doesn't support patriarchy before the fall. Of course, complementarians will argue, you know, till their death that, that it does, but you can look at just for yourself at the argument, so that was a big aha moment. Uh, and then the other one is what I shared this morning that there is a woman pastor in the New Testament, Priscilla. 
the whole conversation is women can't lead churches because there's no women pastors in the Bible. I, I used to, my previous church, I would speak to all the members. I was the salesperson for complementarianism. I, was, I had the ability to explain things in a winsome way. Most, I would sometimes get innovation. I'd explain complementarianism so well. Can you believe it? But my, one of my points is that, um, that I, would say, I would say, you know, there's no women pastors in the Bible. We don't want to go beyond the Bible. There's a lot of cultural pressure to do so. Oh, but we're not going to do that because we follow Jesus, not culture. And, you know, well done. What a discovery. Actually, there's immense amounts of evidence that Priscilla was a pastor. I did a talk this morning on that. Um, and then next Sunday morning, I'm going to seek out Wives Submit and the discovery that um, Ephesians 5 verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, is part of a sentence that flows seamlessly into the next sentence where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But here's the thing, in the Greek, it doesn't say submit because it just, it, it by ellipsis, uses the, the verb submit from the previous sentence. So exactly the same kind of submission we give each other is the, the kind of submission that a wife is meant to give to her husband. And uh, I don't, when I submit to you and you submit to me, you know, Christian style, laying down my life to humbly serve and please you, I'm not submitting to your authority. I'm laying down my life in service of you as if you were an authority, but, but, but not really. And that's the kind of submission. And, and, and that was an aha moment. But I, I just picked out a couple more. I've actually got seven. I'm going to see how far I get. And I, Julie told me not to overprepare. So I just thought of some big headings and see what comes out of my mouth. Also take the pressure off myself to dot every I, cross every T, because I wrote it in a book with 825 footnotes. So if you're listening to this, don't evaluate me just on this talk. You can easily find my flaws. But if you buy my book, uh, you might be able to go, okay, he did support that. And then, then you can critique the book, but don't critique the talk if you're listening. Okay. So uh, here's some of my aha moments. The first one, if I recall, Julie might have to help me, is that complementarianism is not the historic view. So that was another argument. You know, uh, we don't get to make up Christianity. Christianity is 2,000 years old. For 2,000 years, women have not been allowed to be pastors. Women are in submission to men. You don't come along in the 21st century and think you can just make up what you want. Complementarianism is the historic position. It's pretty strong. Well, not, well here's the problem. When I actually did research and I wrote a chapter on it in my book, the church's longest-running sin has been misogyny, has been its awful treatment of women. Name any of the major church leaders that we quote all the time with such fondness, and then see what they said about women. They believed that women were essentially inferior, unstable, prone to deception, prone to fear, weak, <laughs> emotional, irrational, incapable of teaching, incapable of leadership because they were made of inferior quality. That was the standard teaching of the church. And then comes the women's liberation movement, which actually comes as a result of Christianity slow soaking into the culture. Because into that culture comes the idea men and women are equal. And Jesus' amazing treatment of, of women. And Galatians 3 verse 28, that uh, in Christ there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. This is the magna carta of humanity. That idea slow soaks into culture. So given enough centuries, this idea comes to culture. Women are our equals. Um, but the irony is that uh, the church at the same time was releasing this truth, 
has also latched onto patriarchal assumptions and had married patriarchy into its doctrines and read its own doctrines through the lights of patriarchy. Come women's liberation movement, such a powerful movement, and sweeps through the world and persuades uh, within a decade or two, you know, the entire Western civilization. Women are not incapable. They share uh, intelligence and leadership ability with men. Bang! And that idea is accepted. They win the day. Powerful social movement. And, and now the church looks pretty dumb because, you know, we've always taught that the women, the women are inferior. Now they say, no, women are equal. What to do? At first they push back on it. But then the good thing, they look back at their scriptures and go, hang on, actually there's a lot here about women equality. No, we do believe in women equality. A brand new doctrine comes upon the church in the 70s. Catholics and the Protestants all embrace it. Now you've got a brand new teaching. Women are equal. Can you see how you're now thrown out the old teaching? Complementarianism has now got a challenge. Okay, so we do believe women are equal, but now should we let them lead? And what about, you know, should women still submit to their husbands? You've got the mutualists who say, well, hang on. If women are equal, and we read the Bible again, because now we've got permission to read the Bible again on this, maybe for the first time, look, it's not there. Complementarians push back and say, no, no, women are equal. They're, they're not inferior, but still they've got to subordinate. But now they've got to explain why. For 2,000 years, they could say, well, women are subordinate because women are inferior. We lead them for their own good. Now you can't say that anymore. Now you need to think of some good reasons. And you go to the Bible and you pick out a bunch of passages. George Knight, in 1977, writes a short book that he calls The Plain Teaching of Scripture on the Matter. And he basically makes a whole bunch of arguments that, as far as we know, were never made before for why women need to be subordinate to men, even though they're equal to men. If you look at the text this way, if you look at that text this way, and that idea takes root, it's immediately pushed back on. But now the complementarians have got some new angles in Scripture. They come up with new reasons. Ten years later, George Knight gets hold of two rising stars in the evangelical movement, John Piper, Wayne Grudem. And says, watch it, these false teachers, these, these egalitarians, they are distorting the scriptures. Come, now's your moment to shine. At the same time, the church in the West is dazed and confused by the rapid changes in society. And, catches the, and, and starts to think, now you know what the real problem is? That women are rising up illegitimately. That's the problem. So they then are more prone to read the Bible as defense. And instead of seeing the wonderful thing happening in culture, the equality of women, they see it as a threat. And these guys then marshal hyper-conservative scholars and package the, the, the content in the best possible way. They find new language, and they come up with the name complementarianism. Look how wonderfully we complement each other. We're equal, but different roles. And you know, it sounds right to the modern. So they find new ways of describing it. And because the church is in reaction against what's happening in the world, they basically win the day. 1987, complementarianism is born. Within a decade, you've got entire denominations. Southern Baptists, the biggest denomination in America, one in four Americans are part of it. One in four American Christians are part of it. have signed off. And uh, whatever women pastors there were in the Southern Baptist churches, uh, sorry, you've got to go. So they either go underground or they get kicked out. A lot of pain and a lot of humbling because they now get treated like liberals even though they love the Bible as much as everybody else. And uh, the, so begins the 30-year experiment called complementarianism, which 
in our time, I propose, is, coming, is starting to implode. Starting to implode. So complementarianism is a, is, a, is a new teaching. No, with no more precedence than mutualism. So the historic position of the church was women are inferior to men, therefore they need to be subordinate to men. Complementarianism says, no, women are equal to men, but still they need to be subordinate to men because of these seven reasons. <laughs> Read these Bible passages. Mutualism or egalitarianism says, Women are equal to men, and therefore they don't need to be subordinate to men. And no, that's not how you read those Bible passages. Those are your three options. But my point is, mutualism is not the new kid on the block. Complementarianism and mutualism arrive at the same time in history. So don't come here and say, you know, we're the historic position. All that betrays is that we haven't done our homework and actually looked at church history. Had we looked at church history, we would be a lot more humble in proposing theologies of women, because if we've learned anything, it's the, the misogyny that, that, that is a bias in the church that likes to keep women in, as a, in a less than position. So that's my first aha moment. What's the second point I got there? The Trinity. So, uh, you know, now you've got complementarianism. So I want to speak about the Trinity. You've got complementarianism, born 70s, 80s, <coughs> And you're saying women are equal, but they need to be subordinate. And people go, okay, uh, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> How can you be equal, uh, you know, and yet you're permanently, irreversibly subordinate? Just by virtue of your chromosomes. If you're a woman and you get married to a guy, you might be three years older than him. But once you get married, you're now subordinate to him. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but I thought we were equal. I, it's just my mind blowing a fuse here. Just explain to me again how I'm equal and subordinate at the same time. So now you've got a new way of saying it, but it's, in, it's inconsistent within itself. Complementarians got to think fast. How are we going to explain to people? George Knight is the first guy who says, well, actually, the Trinity, the son's relationship to the father is a picture of the, of the wife's relationship to a husband. They're equal, but submit. Go to the Trinity. So he says that. People then go, hang on, hang on. Jesus, the Son of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity are in heaven. And then Jesus for 33 years comes down to this earth. And for those 33 years, he's subordinate to the Father. Then he goes back up to the Father. Before he came to the earth, he wasn't subordinate. Now that he's back in heaven, he's not subordinate. Only for 33 years, he was subordinate. That doesn't sound permanent. So it's not really a great analogy, you know. You're married for 50 years, and for all 50 years, every single day, you're subordinate. That's permanent, irreversible, whereas Jesus only did 33 years in this. And, and it's understandable. I mean, if the Son of God becomes flesh, and he's on the earth, and he's, and he's cut himself off some, some, to access to some of his divine privileges and powers, well, it makes sense why you would be subordinate. <laughs> Obviously, you know, the one, you know, the one who comes down to earth is going to be, you know, taking orders from the one who's still in heaven. Got to think fast. Wayne Grudem, 1995, he's busy writing his systematic theology, and he says, no, actually, for all eternity, the Son is subordinate to the Father. And he writes in his book, he, he, says, he says, imagine the Son saying to the Father, it's not fair, for the last 15 billion years, you've been in charge. And, uh, and Wayne Grudem says, no, the Son of God doesn't ask that. He accepts the fact that he's eternally subordinate to the Father. And... Um, the entire complementarian community latch onto it, receive it, 
And within a sh- 20, the next 20 years, as people are writing books about the Trinity, they now are no longer emphasizing the relational equality within the Trinity. They are emphasizing the order within the Trinity. Father, Son, authority, submission for all eternity. So they are starting to think of the Trinity in ways that are actually pretty new in church history. They don't realize this, but there's a guy called Kevin Giles who's written a fantastic review of my book, which Christians for Biblical Equality are going to publish. But he goes, no, this is not right. He says that's not the historical teaching, and he starts to write books, that actually this belief in eternal subordination of the Son was um, dealt with in the council of, one of the councils in the 300s, and it was called the heresy. And what all the complementarians have done, they haven't revived Arianism exactly, but they've headed in a similar direction because by putting Jesus in eternal subordination to the Father, they've actually made him less than the Father. And the church has, has, if you know anything about church history, spent hundreds of years in this conversation before they reach complete clarity and the whole church in the world agree. The Father and the Son are in eternal equality. And he, he's, but of course, he's egalitarian. He wants to listen to egalitarian. Well, then it's some complementarian woman, Amy Bird. She latches onto this. So she actually does believe that only women, that only men can be pastors. But she notices that this is a bad argument and starts um, writing blogs. She's an armchair theologian and she gets a little miffed. And she writes a book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which was John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book. And she starts confronting them. And she starts a couple of blogs. Next thing, a bunch of major theologians of the world jump on. And this sprawl, this, this, um, this big fight happens on the internet. Blogs everywhere. Theologians around the world argue against the four eternal subordination. And basically, within a matter of weeks, there is a widespread repentance of eternal subordination. These complementarian scholars walk away with their tails between their legs. It's a, it's a heresy that's been snuck into the church, and it was invented by complementarians who dragged the Trinity into their determination to keep women in subordination. It looks really bad on them. And uh, by the way, Michael Wayne Grudem is now is uh, re-releasing his book. He's made some changes, but in his marketing, he's still attacking um, Amy Bird. He was just so embarrassed by this woman that called him a, her- a heretic. You know, he wrote the main systematic theology. So in his social media, he just has a few goes at her. And I love uh, Michael Bird, who's a theologian in Australia. He also writes an endorsement for my book. He writes on social media, says, let me get this right. 20 major theologians, biblical scholars, professional scholars, and one armchair theologian, a woman, take you on. And who do you pick on? <laughs> the woman. <laughs> anyway, that's a little aside. It's got nothing to do with the Trinity. But in 2016, the goalie left the goals. That's why complementarianism is imploding. The major argument has imploded. There is no way of really making sense of how you can be equal and eternally, equally equal and irreversibly, uh, you know, unalterably, by verse, by, by, on the basis of your chromosomes, uh, subordinate. There is just no way. It, it's inconsistent within itself. And it's true that the son is subordinate to the father while he's on the earth. But, but um, there is no verse in the Bible anywhere that says, model your submission to another human on the, on the basis of the way Jesus submits to the father. There's no verse like that. 
So in other words, it's, it's, it's an illustration, but it's not one mandated by Scripture itself. The relationships within the Trinity are so absolutely unique that you actually can't find Timothy and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, say, oh no, we actually, the Trinity, the, the, the Son's subordination to the Father, they don't believe in eternal subordination, but still while he was on earth, is so delicate that you actually need humans to enact it so that we can make sense of it. So they're arguing that, um, that wives actually need to subordinate to their husbands to show the world the beauty of the Trinity. That's, that's chapter 6 in their book, um, The Meaning of Marriage. It was so compelling, Julie, when she wrote a paper for our previous church, to explain to all the pastor's wives why you are second fiddle at home and in church, presented to them the beautiful picture of the Trinity. Guys, your job is to, to play the Jesus role. Look how Jesus submits to the Father. Equal the Father, and yet submits to the Father. It was very enticing. The problem is that it's not a, it, it's an illegitimate comparison. Timothy and Kathy Killer are wrong to say that, that your job is to try and mimic a picture that actually nowhere in Scripture says you're meant to mimic. Besides, how on earth do you find an earthly relationship to mimic the Trinity, which is a mystery? And the closest you could get, you could get like an older guy, younger guy and a eunuch, and a three marriage, you know, marriage three people. It's just bizarre. You shouldn't go there. There's only one place where Jesus says, hey, there's something in our in our relationships in the Trinity that you can model. In John 17, he says, I pray that you'd be one with each other, love each other, as the Father and I are one with each other. So in other words, if there's any way of taking something in the Trinity and modeling it in our marriages, in our communities, it's not through a chain of command, it's through a bond of love. It's the way we love each other, the way we delight in each other. That's the only way you can reflect something of the Trinity into this world. The Trinity is not a, a legitimate basis for, um, for uh, subordinating women. And when I realized that and I saw no one in the goals, I thought I'm going to write a book and I'm going to kick the ball right into the back of that boat. No one's going to stop it. Okay, my next point. Male apostles. This is a big one. I mean, Jesus was the first public feminist. By feminist, I mean somebody that treated women as equals, didn't keep them in their sphere, just was remarkable, non-patronizing in the way that he brought them into the game, gave them dignity, listened to them, treated them as peers, and gave them ministry opportunities that before were not, never given to women. And uh, it was absolutely amazing. His complementarians say, yes, yes, yes. Jesus treated women really well. He even gave them ministry opportunities, but he never made them leaders. When he chose leaders, he chose 12 men. Fair enough. So the argument is, is that. And, and most of the, the complementarians who unpack this, they say, hang on, there's only, there's, this is more or less what they say. There's, there's one of two reasons that Jesus chose 12 men. The first reason is he was upholding patriarchal convention. In other words, he was thinking, you know, I live in a patriarchal time. These guys are leading the charge. I'm going to probably need men, you know, if, I'm going to, if my message is going to be received from people out there. That's the one reason. And they go, well, that can't be because Jesus didn't really care that much about what people thought a lot of the time. You know, he healed on the Sabbath, he spent time alone with the women. He, he, broke, con he broke conventions. So it can't be that. So what's the other reason that Jesus could have chosen 12 men? Well, this, that he is upholding the principle of male leadership. So you see the logic. It's pretty, it's like, oh my gosh, got me. 
what's wrong with it is actually there are more than two possibilities of why Jesus chose 12 men. And we are not told explicitly why, why he chose 12 men, except for one major clue. It comes, I think, in the Gospel of Matthew, Luke chapter 22, where he compares the 12 apostles to the 12 sons of Jacob. So you remember, Jesus was a master of symbolic action. He's working out a mission to people that are immersed in the story of the Old Testament. And everything he's doing is he's playing upon these pictures. He goes up onto the mountain where he does teaching for the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because, Jesus went, because Moses went up on a mountain. He gives them bread. Why? Because Moses gave the people, or God gave the people bread through Moses' ministry. Uh, you know, he turns the table. Why? Because it's a picture of God cleansing the temple. Jesus is a master of symbolic action, dying on the Sabbath while, lie, while lambs are being, you know, sacrificed around him. Master of symbolic action. Perhaps his most striking symbolic action of all is his selection of 12 men that he calls the sons of Abraham, sons of Jacob. Remember, by the time Jesus came, 10 of the tribes had been wiped out and absorbed into the world. Only two tribes left. The story of Israel had, fa- had failed. All of the promise had gone to pieces. Jesus is reconstituting the people of God under his leadership. He's saying, I'm the new Abraham. And, and these, these 12 are the new sons. I'm bringing the people together, and I'm repairing what is broken, and I'm taking the people of God into the next stage. I mean, why is Paul, sorry, Peter in such a panic before Pentecost to try to find an 11th apostle? Sorry, 12th. So it's him plus an there's him and 10 others. Judas has committed suicide. Got to find another person. It seems pretty arbitrary because you never hear of this guy again. It's Judas, if I recall. Uh, Judas, yeah. He's the guy who replaces. Am I right, Angelique? Angela, not Angelique. And, um, and uh, so he, he needs these 12. We're told that as he's speaking at Pentecost, it says Jesus stood there. I mean, sorry, Peter stood there with the 11. Had Peter been standing there, summoning people to their Messiah with 10 guys next to him, the symbolism would have been ruined. And these 12 apostles exist primarily for the first stage of the people of God as it goes into Israel for the people for whom this symbolism matters. Soon enough, the gospel spreads beyond Judea, Israel to the world. Now there are new apostles, Ephesians 4 apostles, you know, Barnabas, Paul, Silas, Jr., I think I might come back to it. I don't know how I have time. So you've even got a woman apostle now. Because now the symbolism isn't that important. Besides, if you're going to take Jesus' selection of 12 men as a template and say, this is a template for the way we should build churches. We need to be led by a group of men. Well, then what stops you from also making sure that you've got 12 men, not just one? And please, no Gentile men, 12 Jewish men, and not old men, young men, and not slaves free. So now you can accuse Jesus not just of being gender biased, but class biased. No, no, Jesus is not putting forward a template. I mean, if, if Jesus was putting on this kind of this picture of the new creation, then we would have hoped that he would have chosen six men, six women, six Jews, six Gentiles, six old, six young. That wasn't, that wasn't what he was trying to do. Respect what he was trying to do. What is the symbolism that he was sending out? And... Uh, and when you see how well Jesus treated women with no respect to their, gen, to, their you know, the, to keeping them in a little gender sphere, he's defying patriarchal norms. So it would be unwise to now look at him choosing 12 men and then interpret it 
with a claim. No, Jesus is upholding patriarchy when the rest of his behavior is undermining <laughs> that tendency to prefer men over women. What's my next point? Pardon? Kefale. Kefale is the Greek word. What does kefale mean? <laughs> I don't know. I probably pronounced it all wrong. It's the Greek word for head. How do you pronounce it? Kefale. You don't know. Kefale. Kefale. And kefale. Sorry. And and it means head. And it comes in two key passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. Six or seven times Paul uses kefale. Uh, That's my new pronunciation. I'm like, I'm my... Kefalia. Okay, but there's only one E at the end, so you've got me two sounds at the end. Now you're confusing me. I'm going to go with kefale, and I'm pronouncing it wrong, but just so I don't get too confused. Usually, Paul uses that to speak about Jesus as the head of the body, uh, or the head of what he's created. But in two places, it says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says, for the head of every man is Christ, the head of man is woman, the head of Christ is God. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. And it, the word head there is kephale, which I'm pronouncing wrong purposely. And uh, what does it mean? What does it mean? Because it's a pretty strong statement. Well, I tell you what, what complementarians, here's the thing, not all of them. And I'm so grateful for this. You go to Acts chapter 29, Mark Driscoll's movement he originally started. <coughs> the biggest Acts 29 movement is Village Church. They write a big paper where they look at all the key texts. They are complementarian, but there is a woman involved in this process. You can see she's influencing it because she, she relies on the best scholarship on 2 Corinthians 11 and argues, no, this is not a reference to authority. It's a reference to something else. But still, most of your complementarians are going are to make this point. That the word kefale there means authority over. <clears throat> a head, we understand as kind of the executive function of the body. The brain is in the, and, and in the English language, <clears throat> as well as in German in the past and <clears throat> Latin, the head was, head means authority amongst other things. You know, the head of a, head of a company is the CEO. So we tend to think of it. So when we read head, we've got these associations. The question is, did Paul have those associations? A couple of parents say, oh, absolutely. But actually, it's quite a nuanced conversation. It's possible. It's got a range of possible meanings, and you need to determine the, the, which one that he's using based on the context. It is, thank you so much. It's very seldom in the first century that when used metaphorically, not just of a literal head of a body, it's very seldom that it refers to authority over. It usually means other things. So the best commentators on Corinthians, Gordon Fee, uh, Anthony Thistleton, for example, they write these tombs, do so much work on this, especially Anthony Thistleton, and they make the case that it doesn't mean authority over. What it does mean... <coughs> And Anthony Thistleton and Gordon Fee disagree. I go with Gordon Fee in the end, because I think his argument is more compelling. It means either prominent one, not necessarily authority, or, um, or it means source of life, source of provision. 
in the Greek world in the first century, a head was understood as the place from where life came to the body. You cut the head off, the body dies. Philo, the, the, the Jewish Greek uh, philosopher, said that the head releases a life force into the body. So this life comes from the head to the body. It seems like Paul, who was Greek-speaking, especially employed that idea. And, uh, and so he's speaking about it as a source of life. And these three statements are not meant to be sophisticated theology. In my book, I deal with this in more detail. But if I can tell you my understanding, where Paul says the head of every man, the head of every man is Christ, he's going back to the Garden of Eden, and he's saying that Adam was created by, was created through Christ. And every man, meaning Adam and his sons. So Adam is now the, you know, the archetypal man. And who, after Adam was made, was the next person was Eve. But Eve was made different. Remember, Eve was made from Adam. So now Adam is the source of Eve. It was literally taken from his side. Adam is the source of Eve. And then Christ is the source. I mean, God is the source of, of Christ. Probably re a reference to Jesus' incarnation. He came to this world, but now he is an image of the Father in heaven. He's the image of the invisible God. He says, I have no, my life comes from the Father. He is sustained. Let me just drink this. He's sustained by the Father. In other words, it's not speaking about authority over. <clears throat> and perhaps one of the clearest evidences that this is the case is there's only one verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that specifically speaks about authority, even uses the Greek word for authority, excusia. It's the main word. It's used a hundred times in the New Testament. It's the word if you wanted to speak about authority. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, therefore a woman will have authority over her own head. The passage, by the way, is about wearing a head covering. My friend thinks with what she does with her head, but I think it's a head covering. My friend Andrew Bartlett, who's written the book Men and Women in Christ. And the whole thing is about, you know, keeping that hat on. And, and just so you... What I, my understanding of this passage is only married women got to wear veils over their head. Prostitutes, single women, you know, they weren't allowed to wear it. But when you came to church, Paul says, no, you all wear it. What he was doing is he was taking people and he was giving them the, all the same honored status. Cynthia Westfall says that it seems like some men were telling these women to take their hats off. And the, and the women were going, no. They, and he was encouraging them to, to hold their ground. And it says, therefore, women have authority over their own head. You read the ESV, and it says, therefore, uh, the woman has a sign of authority over her own head. It's a complete fabrication. There's absolutely nothing in those Greek words. So remember, ESV claims that they are the most literal translation. They'll take the words in the Greek, and they'll translate it into the English. Now they're importing a meaning in, because it's very different. You know, if a woman has authority over, over her own head, it's very different to wearing a sign of authority, implying that she's, she's putting something on her head as her way of recognizing the authority of another. It's a complete fabrication. It's a complete mistranslation. The only verse that specifically speaks about authority in this long passage that the complementarians say supports the subordination of women where it actually speaks about authority, it speaks about a woman having authority over herself. That was the aha moment. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to speak about that next Sunday. So maybe I'll wait.
after that, next Sunday morning. If you don't come in the morning, um, these talks are being put up on Signal, so you'll be able to hear that one. Yeah, 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 is the verse. Most, most complementarians, you know, they'll either say this right up front, it's the fallback verse, they'll have a whole bunch of arguments, you know, for why women, maybe we can just close these windows, a whole bunch of arguments for why women need to subordinate, and you'll argue them. And they'll, go, they'll eventually go, yeah, maybe. But what about 1 Timothy 2 verse 12? It's the, it's the bulwark. It's the major argument. And remember what 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 says? You probably don't, but it says, I do, not, I'm, I do not permit a woman to teach or to, depending on the translation, exercise authority over a man, or the NIV assume authority over a man. So the verses before, speaking about um, false teaching in the church, and then Paul says, therefore, therefore, I want men to pray, but please, no anger in your prayer. You know, you, you've got to get rid of the anger and the disputing. And women, uh, please, no dressing ostentatiously and seductively. Uh, you know, give yourself to good deeds, which is appropriate to a person who professes faith in God. And then he speaks singular. And he says, a woman um, should learn in, you know, in humble submission to should learn in humble submission. And then he says, I do not permit a woman to teach nor to. And the Greek there is authentane, a man. So what the heck does authentane mean? It's important to find out because it's the only, it's used only once in the whole Bible. So it's a word you've got to make sure you understand the meaning. Well, what does it mean? Well, the context is going to tell us is the right answer. Well, the other way you could try to find out is you could find out when else in Greek, you know, in the Greek literature in the first century was the word used? And this is where uh, I did what felt like months of work reading up the studies of the different uses of the word authentic, because there's only, I don't know, seven or eight in the century before and the century after Paul that we've been able to find where that particular Greek word is used. And what you find is that it, its meaning changes wildly from like occasion to occasion. What it is, is that it was a a subliterary word. In other words, it was a kind of a colloquialism. It wasn't written down. It was part of the language, which has made it so inflexible and unstable a word. So what exactly does it mean? Well, complementarians say it definitely means exercise authority over. Well, actually, they didn't make it that strongly. Women in the Church, which is one of the two main complementarian works, which is an analysis of 1 Timothy chapter 2, gets Henry Baldwin, I think that's his name, and they get him to do a study, and he says, well, you know, it could mean many things. It could mean control or dominate. could mean that. We're going to have to try to figure out which one it means. But, of course, control or dominate, that's quite a negative meaning. That sounds something different than exercise authority. Yeah? I mean, a teacher who exercises authority just says, everybody, let's keep quiet. Okay? Uh, Have you done your homework? Whereas controlling and dominating sounds something different. (laughs) And um, so the question is, which, what, what is the meaning? So Henry Baldwin, he, he says it could mean many different things. Well, the third version comes out in 2016 of the same book. They've tossed Henry Baldwin's chapter out. Now they bring in Earl Walter's work. He says, no, no, it definitely doesn't have any negative meanings. And he makes really a brand new case, which really suits the complementarian purpose, hey? What that book is an example of sectarian scholarship. It actually, it actually really overwhelmed me reading that because it's these, these brilliant scholars just making a case 
for that particular interpretation. I'm so grateful for my friend Andrew Bartlett, who thoroughly, uh, you know, critiques that book, more so than mine in his book, Men and Women in Christ, <clears throat> and reaches the same conclusion as me and Cynthia Westfall, that the word means either assume authority or it means to dominate, to domineer, to control. And in fact, some translations don't have exercise authority. They've got assume authority. So a teacher could exercise authority, but then she walks out the class and some kid jumps up and says, I'm in charge. That, that person's now assuming authority. Um, and some translations have lord it over, um, dictate, dominate. Here's the thing. The, the complementarians, it has to mean exercise authority because their interpretation is we, Paul is not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Oh, because only male elders can teach or exercise authority over men. They have to have that positive translation for their interpretation to hold. Problem is that only in the fourth century for sure was authentic started to start being used in a positive sense as exercise authority. In Paul's time, it didn't mean that. When you actually look at the context, there are huge reasons to believe that Paul is speaking correctively about misbehavior in the church. False teachers have ravaged the church of Ephesus. These male false teachers have particularly targeted women. Some of the male, all the male teachers may be gone by this point. It's possible that the only false teachers are now female. Andrew Bartlett makes this case quite strongly. But these women, either they are purveyors of the false teaching, I'm not 100% sure that's the, that's the point, or they are so badly impacted by the false teaching that their attitude towards men stinks. <laughs> Part of the effect of this false teaching is they now are antagonistic towards the men. And they are trying to teach these men in an aggressive, uh, you know, dominating way, which uh, is, is, in a sense, bringing a disgrace to the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to Timothy, says, Timothy, I'm not permitting. By the way, that's present tense. That gives you at least some reason to doubt that Paul is speaking about a forever rule for all churches everywhere. I'm not permitting, speaking present tense. And, uh, and he's not saying women shall not teach men. He's saying I'm not permitting. He's softening it. Seems like he is speaking specifically to a situation where some people were teaching others in a domineering way. And Paul says, I don't want it to happen anymore. It so happens that it was women doing this to men, which is why he says, I'm not permitting a woman to do this to men. And then he reaches into the story of Adam and Eve as an example of something like this happening before. Complementarians and mutualists struggle to show exactly how these verses relate. Where Paul says, well, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and it wasn't Eve. It was, Adam was deceived first, it was Eve. There are different ways of holding it together. In my book, I explore complementarian ones and the mutualist ones, and I say why I think these are wrong, and this particular one may be right, but we have to admit that actually um, this may be a passage that is an example of a hard saying. Peter, in one of his two epistles, says, some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, is the hardest passage to understand in the Bible, in the last century, there has not been a, a set of verses that has been debated more than, you know. And, and it is a cloudy passage. One of the rules of interpretation 
is you don't draw a major doctrine from a cloudy passage. You read a cloudy passage through clear passages. The biggest mistake complementarians make is they take a hazy, <laughs> overcast, cloudy passage, and they are 100% sure that it's an eternal ban, a universal ban on women ever teaching or leading men, even though the Bible is filled with stories of women leading and teaching men. The clear passages this morning, I, I, I explored it. You've got Priscilla sitting down with Apollos. Apollos has got bad doctrine, not a problem. Priscilla has been taught by the Apostle Paul. Her and her husband are looking after a church. They sit this man down and they teach this man doctrine. <laughs> I mean, what's that? They're also the leaders of the church. See here you've got Priscilla and Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila teaching and leading a man with God's blessing. And they are busy making one of the great teachers of the church. That's a clear teaching. So you read 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 in the light of a clear passage. Instead of as what the complementarians do, taking an unclear passage and then cutting down every woman in scripture who looks like she does something for God. That is what complementarians do. When I first got involved in this, I was really at a heart for women that had got quite a shoddy deal in the church. Gifted, called women who were not getting the same opportunities as the men. And as I got involved in this theology and understanding complementarians, I found that I was just as passionate as about defending not just my real living sisters, but Deborah and Priscilla. Because these women were being treated despicably by complementarians shrunk down, explained away, cut down to size. Authentane, once I realized, well, that doesn't mean exercise authority. It means something else, negative. It, not only women should do it, no godly person should do it. 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 does not say what complementarians say it, it means. And so I realized that, well, every other scripture looked different. 